Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are having one of our annual film festival podcasts. Morgan and I have been attending the New York and London film festivals respectively. Obviously we have been attending these in our houses while streaming. We have some really cool highlights and we also have a variety of interesting smaller movies which some of which we can recommend to you and some of which we can non-recommend to you. And I think the big hitters we have are Nomadland, which Morgan's going to be talking about. I could not get into that one. And there's also Steve McQueen, the acclaimed British director of movies like 12 Years a Slave and Shame and Widows a couple of years ago. Uh, He is releasing an anthology of five movies, which are kind of, they're made by the BBC for the BBC. So they are a TV anthology, but like it's five feature films of varying lengths. And they're all about the London West Indian community in the sort of late 20th century. And they have some amazing actors in, including the more famous ones are Letitia Wright and John Boyega. So Morgan has seen three of those movies. I have seen two. We have a lot to say about those. And we also have some other more obscure films to talk about, um, including some documentaries, some horror movies, uh, really fantastic new films starring Maz Mikkelsen. Um, So yeah, we've got a lot for you. So we're going to start with the Steve McQueen movies and basically see how long we talk (laughs) to assess whether this needs to be one or two episodes. So um, you're going to go on an adventure with us, a podcasting adventure. (laughs) Usually most years we do have two or three episodes dedicated just to film festivals, but who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Yes. I did not get a press pass to the New York Film Festival this year because they were very selective with them. Toronto is especially selective with them because basically what happened, and this is also the reason why Gav did not get into Nomadland, is that the studios are really freaked out by the fact that the films are screening digitally because they're afraid of piracy. So this is some inside baseball for you about what's going on with film festivals this year. I had to select a smaller number than I would see normally and pay for them. So I liked most of what I saw because I was going in with the knowledge like I had to pay for what I was watching um whereas normally if you have a press pass you're just seeing lots of stuff and then sometimes things that you don't expect at all because you don't know anything about them are like fun discoveries so that was kind of something I missed about the festival this year but I picked all three of the Stephen Queen movies because I was like well this is something we're going to want to talk about and that is what we're starting with so these are definitely feature films there's no other way to discuss them like they're clearly features the distribution method is bbc television which means that they are going to play to as wide an audience as possible in the uk which is brilliant and very good and important for reasons that will become clear when we discuss the films uh but yeah i agree with morgan They, they don't seem like tv movies they don't seem like a tv miniseries they are individual movies like real grown up very good movies yes although apparently when the press materials were sent out they wanted them reviewed as a group So I think that McQueen and the BBC and Amazon is distributing them in the United States. I don't know about elsewhere in the world. I think they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too a little bit in terms of like what is going on in terms of like how they're received. But I do think it's it was interesting watching them because on the one hand, my brain was kind of like, I would love to have seen these in a theater, which obviously for multiple reasons was never going to happen. Like, like that's not possible right now, period, regardless of like how these are distributed. But also, as you say, like these are about the Caribbean community in London and kind of like the 60s through the 80s, I think, is the timeline. Mm -hmm. And 
I think it's an extremely deliberate political decision to have them go through the BBC. I don't know if that was just like how the funding was originally secured, but it feels intentional to me. I mean, I think also there was kind of an infrastructural element where Steve McQueen was very personally interested in getting uh, more people behind the scenes, like more black people involved in British TV and filmmaking at basically entry level jobs. I think that might have been part of it. Like the BBC is a colossal part of the TV and film industry in the UK, obviously, and something he has talked about kind of publicly, which we can link to an article about in the show notes, is that like behind the camera, there is just very few non-white people involved in the industry in the UK. Yeah. And also the actors are great. We both had the experience of looking a lot of them up and like the lead guy in Mangrove, which is the first one we'll talk about in detail. It's the first one in like the series. Um, although I was, I watched them out of order because like that's not how they were presented to us at the film festival. Is so good. And you look him up and he's had a good career. I mean, he has an established right? theatre and TV career in Britain, but like he is good. Like he is fucking yeah. good. <laughs> and I had this experience with so many actors in these movies. The guy who plays John Boyega's father in the film that he was in, which you didn't see, but I did see, so I can talk about that, is like incredible. And he's been in, again, like, a lot of stuff in the UK, like, lots of British television that I've, like, kind of vaguely heard of, but it's, like, a lot of sort of, like, multiple episode guest spots in British television shows, right? Like, and on the one hand, you can look at these kinds of careers and be like, well, obviously this person is successful, like, certainly they're making money, and it's really hard to have any kind of success as an actor. But on the other hand, like, these are obviously unbelievably gifted actors, Mm -hmm. and... I doubt that their talents are being used to like the greatest capacity in some of the work that they're doing on these TV shows. And watching them in these films was simultaneously really electrifying because they are getting to like use all of their gifts in these films and also really depressing because you're like, I've, I've basically never seen this person before and where have they been? And like, we know the answer to that. And so there's like, obviously like these are political films political art but like the whole project is obviously like a political project from the ground up right like he wants these people to be working and similarly he clearly wants people in the UK to watch these movies and the way to get the biggest like guaranteed audience is to put them on the BBC and have the BBC advertise them as much as possible and no one could have known that uh, no one would be leaving their fucking houses so like truly these are going to get watched a lot yeah and just as like a secondary note to that like obviously we don't need to explain that like the film industry in britain and america they're both racist in britain there's the additional element of like a lot of british media is historical dramas which are very exclusionary but also because the british film industry is much smaller there isn't really like a black movie industry or a black tv industry the way there is in the u.s yeah anyway shall we talk we're going to talk about mangrove first yes this is a courtroom drama it's based on the true story of the mangrove nine which i was not familiar with before seeing this film i will admit it's set up pretty ingeniously because the second half of the movie i would say is really solidly courtroom drama it's really all legal stuff but the first half really sets up the characters and the confrontations plural um that they and particularly uh the protagonist, although it's really an ensemble piece, are having with the police. So the 
characters involved are this guy, Frank Critchlow, who was a real person who died relatively recently, I think, who owned this restaurant called The Mangrove in Notting Hill, who was just like relentlessly harassed by the London police. And the restaurant became a real meeting ground for the West Indian and Caribbean community there. And he wasn't himself seeking to be a political figure as such, but kind of almost by accident became one as a result of running this restaurant and being the victim of this police brutality and harassment. Letitia Wright plays Althea Jones the Quant, who is a really central figure in the British Black Panther Party. And if you read this woman's Wikipedia page, it's like amazing. Everyone who who has like ever met this woman is clearly like she is incredible. And uh, the sort of like, you know, internal politics of the Black Panthers is not really the point of this film. Like that's clearly part of the reason why the police harassment is going on is like they think that this guy is like connected to the Black Panthers, even though he's not really. But um, there winds up being this protest and the police incite violence and then the activists get charged yeah, I really love the structure of this movie because, um, like you said, so the character Frank Critchlow, like you're introduced to him as basically a guy who's opening this new restaurant in his neighborhood. And it's clearly going to be really popular because it's this great kind of community meeting spot and he's got loads of pals already. And they make a really obvious point of the fact that he's not personally that invested in politics. And he's obviously very aware of kind of the political situation and like the racism from the police in the neighborhood and that sort of thing. But he just wants to keep out of trouble. And he's just on the periphery of people like Althea Jones-Lequant, who is political. And it kind of shows how he is he is politicized by the fact that like he and his community are facing so much very aggressive racism from the police all the time. And it's very kind of methodical and deliberate. So it's like a really gripping and interesting and well-characterized drama with a ton of just like background detail and interesting characters and like you really see how these people like relationships work but it also kind of goes through the whole kind of process of the justice system so you see like the way people are being treated you see like stuff from the police's perspective showing on what's going on behind closed doors um including this like realistic but also like extremely evil shitty horrible local policeman who's just like a nightmare and then kind of it goes through the court system. And I think this is going to be really interesting, particularly for American viewers, because it is very specifically like the English court system. So on top of kind of all the stuff with like people wearing wigs and stuff, like the kind of wood panel courtrooms and stuff, you see the different like class and racial dynamics that exist in Britain. And like the fact that the guy who is like the judge in the court case basically seems like a lord from like a medieval drama. It's like, that's literally what it's like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so this was the third of the three of the McQueen films that I watched. And the first one that I saw was the John Boyega film, which is called Red, White, and Blue, which is based on apparently a real person named uh, Leroy Logan, who was a research scientist who changed careers to become a police officer. And in the film... He's depicted as, I'm sure this is true to life, he really wants to like make an impact in the community because he's a black man, use that to sort of like form better relations between his community and the police. And he has a father who has been harassed by the police and 
is on trial. I think the charge is like assaulting a police officer. It's something like that where like the reverse is true, right? Like the cops assaulted him and they're of course charging him for doing the same. Um, and his father, you see there's like one flashback at the beginning where his father is really anti-cop and is quite political and then is really not happy that his son is doing this. And naturally he winds up going along with this career change and in the police academy his instructors are really sort of favorable to him and he does really well and the second he actually winds up in an actual police station it's like a fucking nightmare because um the cops are racist i've you know shockingly and it's not that like every single person is like born with a political consciousness because of course that is not true it's something that you learn over time but I found the movie definitely the weakest of the three of them, and it just felt quite predictable to me. Like, it wasn't telling me anything that I didn't already know, and I felt like the character would have known all of these things also. Like, I was really surprised to find out that he was a real person after the fact, because it felt totally like a thought experiment to me. Like, oh, what if a black man decided to become a cop and then found out that the cops are bad? Like, I, like yes, hello. And then watching Mangrove after watching that was really interesting because it felt to me like they were kind of examining, like, I mean, obviously, they're fundamentally about racism and injustice in the police force, right? And I understood kind of abstractly why he wanted to do both of them because they are coming at it from different angles. Like, one of them is this person who clearly sincerely believes that he can try to sort of change things from the inside and the other is these people who have no interest in doing that and are having a very different experience but they're both trying to convey the same message ultimately to the audience which is that like this is a corrupt institution and he does it so effectively in mangrove that i was like well what is the point of this other yeah, movie because you've already like told a me stunning like five star film I think that was like the first movie I watched at the festival and I was like okay well it's gonna be hard to top this like it's very very good and like it's also one of these movies that has like an extensive ensemble cast so you obviously have the main protagonist guy but you also have you know secondary figures most of whom are real figures so there's Darkus Howe who was kind of a broadcaster and lawyer and kind of a just like a basically the British equivalent of like a civil rights campaigner in the 70s. And he is this very kind of impressive figure in the film. And then you have all these sort of lower levels or very recognisable types of everyday local like community activists. And then people who are just sort of living there and are experiencing this. You witness that ecosystem on in like a very natural and kind of engaging way in a drama that gives them all of them like really great individual roles and the acting is fantastic, but also kind of the texture of the world they're in. It's like the music choices. There's loads of music and food in these films. Uh, also in Lover's Rock, which I just watched today and was like, this is marvellous. <laughs> and, we'll get um, to that next. We're, yeah. We're and like, because it's like very specific periods, it's like they're set at like these particular years in kind of 1960s, 70s, 80s London. There is loads of like kind of period accurate like props and vehicles and stuff, but it doesn't kind of feel like a corny way. It just feels completely real and authentic. And I was just like, God, this is so immersive and like so stressful, but also kind of so beautiful because all of the characters are just really interesting and engaging. So my favorite film with Steve McQueen's is Hunger, which is his debut film, which is one of my like top five movies of all time. And I think is still like easily his best work. I highly recommend it to anyone. And it 
engages in some sort of similar themes to these movies. It's about Bobby Sands and the IRA hunger strikers in Northern Ireland in the Troubles. So it all takes place, almost all takes place inside of a prison. And I remember um, when I had a like film internship a decade ago now, which is terrifying to think about. He was working on um, a screenplay about Fela Kuti, which ne- like was stuck in development hell forever and never happened. Um, but Shuatel Ajifor was going to play him, and he like learned how to play the saxophone for this movie, and apparently was amazing at it. And it's like tragic that this film never came to be. But anyway, that was what he was working on. And then there was this like news of this movie he was doing about like a sex addict. And we were all like, "What's happening?" And my boss at the time said that he talked to McQueen's agent and said to me that. What the agent had said was that Steve is interested in people and their personal prisons, which I have thought about many times since, because I think it's like the best way to think about his work. But he's also very much interested in like actual prison, like like for real. And it showed actual sort of physical entrapment shows up in his work a lot. But hunger is really experimental. And he's McQueen started off as a visual like video artist, like he was making experimental art pieces and was in the art world and then he switched into feature films and I had found his first four films which were um Hunger, Shame, 12 Years a Slave and then Widows to be kind of diminishing returns um I like the first three I do not like Widows but I felt like each one was a little bit less good than the last and I felt like what he was doing was getting a little bit more conventional with each one because Hunger is it does not follow any traditional narrative rules of storytelling. Like Michael Fassbender plays Bobby Sands and he doesn't show up until like a third of the way through the movie because it's not how the film is structured. And I watched Red, White, and Blue, which is the Boyega one. And I, it's like well-directed because Steve McQueen is a genius. But I was like, I just wish he would go back to doing the sort of like experimental thing he was doing in Hunger where like there's not a plot and he's really about the camera movement. And that's kind of what Lover's Rock is, which we're going to discuss last. But what I thought was so great about Mangrove is that it really is a conventional film on like a narrative level. It's just really, really good. So he's using all of his gifts as a visual storyteller, but he's just using them like to tell this story in the most effective way possible. And I think the screenplay, which is co-written by him and this guy, Alistair Siddons is really, really good. And I think that his movies often have screenplays that are kind of iffy and his direction is so strong that it doesn't always matter. He always co-writes with somebody else. And I think that the screenplays of the other two ones that we saw were definitely less strong than this one. And they were written by somebody else. But I think the screenplay of this film was great. And write, writers actually matter. <laughs> Making movies, right? But like I just watched last night the Aaron Sorkin film Trial of the Chicago 7 because it was also a courtroom drama and I thought it would be interesting to have watched it before we talked about this movie. And it has problems, as you would expect, from an Aaron Sorkin movie. I liked it fine like it was perfectly entertaining to watch it just looks like i would be so pissed off by that film (laughs) i mean there are things there are problems with the screenplay it is not the thing that you would sort of be afraid of an aaron sorkin movie doing which is like liberal self-righteous like palaver the whole time that's not particularly what's happening i mean i have heard that it's pretty inaccurate in terms of just 
making a film which is about a bunch of people who were a combination of quite serious like hardcore leftist activists and performance artists and I just I can fully believe that he has made a hash of that even if it's not like fully West Wing. I mean I think that there like clearly there are inaccuracies and I think some of them are more of a problem than others right like some of the inaccuracies I don't think matter very much some of them I think are serious problems but the biggest issue with that movie to me is that he does not know how to direct a movie. Like, he literally <laughs> cannot direct a film. And I was watching it thinking, like, if he had a great director, and obviously not all directors would do this, but, like, a really great director would read that script and be like, well, you should probably not do X, Y, and Z either because, like, these are bad moves. Like, directors do a lot of screenwriting. Like, good directors do a lot of changes to screenplays too, right? And they know how to direct films, which, like... Aaron Sorkin cannot do. But I was watching this and like the comparison between those two movies, it like, it really illuminated for me how effective the direction was of Mangrove because even if it's not particularly flashy, it's still a real accomplishment to direct a film like this and have it really work, right? Like it's not as impressive as the direction of Lover's Rock, which we'll get to in a second, but it's not easy because if it were easy, then Chicago 7 would not look like literal garbage on the bottom of my shoe, which is what it looks like. It's trash. And conversely, like, I do think Alistair Sims, who's the co-writer of this, deserves credit for the contributions to the screenplay. Obviously, it's impossible for us to know, like, who exactly wrote what or who was contributing what. But, like, I think that often screenwriters do not, are, like, forgotten, right, and don't get credit for stuff but I think you can kind of go through McQueen's movies and sort of track who's doing the screenwriting with him and like it definitely matters right because he's a visual person and he's not first and foremost a writer and um like Red White and Blue has a different screenwriter and the script is like bad in my opinion I think it's a really bad screenplay and this definitely isn't so just the combination of people who really get what they're doing in this case, and the actors too, obviously, are also good, leads to a film that, like, really knows what it wants to say and says it really effectively. I will say that, like, right after I watched this movie, which was two weeks ago, I think, I was like, this is the best movie I've seen all year. Oh my god, what a masterpiece. And I have not thought about it very much since. Which I think is kind of to do with the fact that it's a bit conventional. Whereas Lovers Rock... Yeah, I just saw that today. So obviously I've not had time for Lover's Rock to like percolate through me yet. But like this movie is just, it's a delight. Obviously I've not seen the John Boyega movie and I'm interested to see the other two which haven't been screened anywhere yet because it kind of seems like he's trying to do a fairly wide range of topics and subgenres within this kind of general umbrella. But Lover's Rock is just over an hour long, which is obviously unusually short for a feature film. And it's just about a house party It's a very immersive film that doesn't have a plot. It's loosely focusing on this one character named Martha, who's a young woman in her late teens or possibly early 20s, who sneaks out of her family home to go to a house party. The actress playing this character is Amara Jason Aubin, who I've not seen in anything and I think is quite a young up-and-coming British actress. It's just her going to this party, like you see the party being set up by some other people, Like you then, the camera kind of follows us through this party through various characters, some of whom you don't even know the names of. And it's just them like hanging out, dancing together, like hooking up. There's various disputes that you get at any party. There's loads of music, like there's very little dialogue. 
and what dialogue there is is just sort of like casual conversation or arguments and this movie is just so good it was like I was watching this and I was just like so desperate to go to a party <laughs> like I was just like oh I want to go to a party I want to like experience social activities again unfortunately uh so I think a lot of people will like share that experience but it was just super fun to watch like it's a very funny movie as well um without obviously being a conventional comedy in any way but it's just funny in the way that people are funny and just like the observational nature of you know especially kind of the interactions between men and women because there was like you know the different periods of the dance party where like only girls are dancing and guys are just sort of watching them and then the point where like girls and guys are dancing together and getting really like raunchy and then the point where the party like really heats up and like it's only men who are dancing kind of like the the interactions in different parts of the house like the places where the food's being served and the places where everyone's getting high and like the toilet queue it's just it's a great I mean it's a perfect movie it's a perfect movie yeah so the Elizabeth Debicki character in Widows is very funny and I think that is basically the only humor in any <laughs> of Steve McQueen's other features. Yeah, I've there only might- seen Widows and like his art work. I've not seen like Hunger, Shame, or Twelve Years a Slave. Oh, Gavia, Gavia, you need to watch them. I mean, now you've described what Hunger's about, I'm actually quite intrigued because I didn't know what Hunger was about, and I'm like, actually, it sounds pretty I- great. <laughs> I'm refraining from comments <laughs> on that. Just disgusted by my ignorance. But like, he, I, I do not get the sense of him as someone with a great deal of like humor in his work. No, I think that like interviews, he's, it's not like he doesn't have a sense of humor, but like, he, that's just not. There are plenty of people who are very funny in interviews, including someone we'll be talking about later, who like, that's just not a part of their work. And so watching this I was just like oh my god like this is it's so different and not even just the humor but the whole tone of like it's such a joyous movie and that is so deeply not what's going on in any of his other films I mean that one was also written by Courtney Newland who is a British Jamaican playwright and this film like a lot of the dialogue is like there's a lot of slang there's like a lot of code switching between like London accents and West Indian accents and there's a lot of just like people shooting the shit and it's that kind of dialogue and it all just like works so well in my opinion yes and to clarify what I was saying with the screenplays I think the screenplay for this film like totally works perfectly I just feel like it's way more of a director movie yeah I mean than a screenplay movie a lot of it is to do with just like where where the camera is and the performances are extremely specific. So it's like you have a lot of characters in this film, but they don't get traditional introductions because there was not very much dialogue. It's one of those movies like where you just don't even consider that like it's a film because you just think you're there. And about halfway through this hour-long film, I was like, oh wait, the cameraman is literally like in the middle of this dance floor for like the entire movie while you're watching these very kind of detailed sort of interactions between like one 19 year old looking at another one in like a potentially horny way and there's just like lots of little visual punchlines to do with like oh here's like the creepy guy at the party and here's the one that's just sort of like a bit of a bitch and that kind of thing (laughs) yeah and so I saw this this was the second one I saw and I had seen the Boyega one and was just like oh, when will Steve McQueen make a movie that like doesn't have a plot? Like, I'm really tired of this. And I watched this movie and was like, I, I complained too Love. fast. <laughs> because, I mean, there's like, stuff happens in this movie. And there's a sort of central 
couple, young couple played by Amara J. St. Aubin and Michael Ward, who kind of have this like romance over the course of the film. But like, there is no plot in this film. That would be like calling that what I just described a plot would be really extreme. And it's so much more interested in just depicting the like vibe of this party. And a long time is spent like showing people dancing. There's one scene, I cannot remember what song they're dancing to and they start singing. Can you remember? No. Do you know what I'm talking about though? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Anyway, there's a song and they're like, but he shows like the whole song and they're dancing to the song and then they all start like singing to it. And it's like seven minute sequence or something. And this movie, as you said, is like a hundred, it's like an hour and five minutes long. And it is so just like euphoric watching this, especially since we've all been trapped, you know, alone or with just a few other people in our houses for so long. Not that I have ever been to a party remotely this cool in my life. And then the sequence where just the men are dancing, I think is the best in the movie, just from like a artistic perspective. Like the camera is just going totally nuts in that scene. I mean, it just puts every party scene to shame because most party scenes... I mean, obviously, if it's, like, a conversational party, that's completely fine and, like, very easy to film. But, like, a non-conversational party, it's one of those things, like, depictions of high school, where there's, like, a film version of that, and then there's the real-life version of that, and this was, like, the real-life version of that. Yeah. I mean, again, like, he's just, he's interested in actually conveying the, like, feeling of the experience, and in using the, like, techniques of film to do that, not in a traditional narrative way and I remember reading about hunger I can't remember who wrote this I feel like it was on some blog that no longer exists but you know someone writing at the time that um the film moves not by narrative or character but by feeling which I think is an accurate description of that film and I think that that is really true of this movie too like you do get a sense of what a couple of the characters are like but they're more archetypal in a not like negative way except for the main woman uh martha who isn't like incredibly richly developed but you definitely do get a sense of what what she's like yeah and also like a lot of it is acting like it's all in performances yes totally completely like i don't think that character is really rich on the page which is not a problem it's just like she's just very good and the movie is what it is but like the creepy guy at the party is such just like a type and has like the costuming of him and the performance of the way that he sort of walks around you totally get what his deal is and what he's kind of representing but the movie's not interested in like going deep into his psychology or whatever and that's fine because the whole thing is kind of this tableau it's going through like all the moods that people have at a party And like all of the fashion choices are amazing because it's like that kind of late 70s, early 80s period where there's so many artificial fabrics. It's very sweaty. And it's also a great period for costume design for this particular film because it means that you can have every individual person wearing like a really different bright colour or pattern, which makes them instantly recognisable in a film where a lot of the scenes are in the dark. And you can like be following people around like a darkened room when there's like 15 characters whose names you don't know. And you're like, oh, it's like green dress girl. Love her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which like is a lot harder to do in like most time periods because it wasn't a period where there was like a lot of like, you know, very reflective 
artificial fabrics with like brightly colored patterns. <laughs> yes, all that is totally correct. And it's just fun to look at. <laughs> yeah. Like the main girl's dress, it's like Amazing. sparkly and purple and you're like, yeah, yeah, she looks great. She looks great. The guy looks great. Everyone looks great. <laughs> he is great too. Michael Ward plays him who he's been in a couple things. He's really good. Again, it's not like a very... I mean, they're both quite young. They're like young up and coming actors in Britain. Yeah, she has been in nothing. She's been on some plays. She was like an understudy in the fucking Harry Potter play. But like, she has no other credits on IMDb. And she is really, really good. And again, that's part of the project of these movies, right? But uh, it's obviously like you're intended to be watching these in conjunction with each other. And this one is all about you know, she does kind of run into some, like, obnoxious white guys who are kind of racist on the street very brief- briefly. But the whole point of this movie is really just about, like, these black people having a really great time at a party. And it's just very joyous. And he obviously wants to be telling this, like, multifaceted story as opposed to something like Mangrove, which I do think is really great and, like, important for people to see. I always think it's kind of obnoxious to be like, this is an important movie, but, like, that is definitely an important movie, but it's also about racial injustice and like police violence and et cetera, which, you know, can be very exhausting to people. And to have this as the corollary, right, I think is really beautiful. I'm really curious about the other two because I don't know anything about them. I mean, obviously we know when they're set yeah. and like roughly when, but they haven't, I think, released any information about the subject matter. So... This was just going to be like a really amazing gift to viewers in the later part of the year. You have an exciting treat coming to you guys. We do, we do. What other movies shall we discuss next? We both watched Undine. Yes. So this is a movie by a director who is particularly dear to me and not someone whose work you're familiar with at all. Yeah, this, I know this guy is one of Morgan's faves and I definitely want to see his other movies. Yes, his name is Christian Petzl, and he was who I was obliquely referring to earlier when I was talking about people who are very funny and whose work is not necessarily funny. I saw him at a, do a, a talk at um, the Film Society of Lincoln Center two years ago. His plane had been delayed, and so he had not had time to sleep. And he literally, he, he like stumbled in and was like, I haven't slept in like 30 hours. And like, <laughs> he was so exhausted and jet lagged and like punchy and had no filter at all. And it was the best q and I have ever been to. He was a fucking delight. I was like, oh, it's so relieving to know that you are a delightful person. He has made films including um, Phoenix, which is five years ago now. One of my favorite movies of the past 10 years, which is a sort of like post-Holocaust drama that's kind of a riff on Vertigo, the Hitchcock movie. Fucking amazing movie. Uh, he also did a film called Transit a couple of years ago, which was took place during World War II, but the sort of conceit of that was that everyone was dressed in like contemporary clothing. So it was an adaptation of a novel that was written during the Second World War. There like there are no cell phones in it, but they're all wearing just like normal suits and stuff. And people really love that movie. I was less enthusiastic about it, but it starred this guy, Franz Rogowski, who is also in this film Undine. And I saw it and was like, well that guy's a movie star. Yeah. Holy shit. And he is also incredible in this movie, but the movie is not great. I think this is going to be a very short review, but basically I watched this movie because I will watch anything that's like mermaid adjacent. 
Undine is like a classic kind of mermaid adjacent fairy tale. And I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this drama by this very acclaimed European filmmaker, which is probably about mermaids. They are definitely trying to sell it as being about mermaids. And for clarity's sake, 100% not a mermaid movie. Although it's kind of being received that way by some people, and I think might be being received that way in Germany. I'm not, it seems unclear. Yeah. The whole thing. I mean, it's a a romantic drama. The main character is a woman who is plays the Undine role. She has a job doing tours at this kind of museum exhibit in Germany. The movie starts with her kind of breaking off a relationship with this guy where it's quite a contentious breakup where she's quite controlling. And then she meets this other guy played by Morgan's man, Franz Rogowski, who is a professional diver. And they have this romance. And like the acting in this movie is fantastic. I was looking up Paula Beer being like, she's so good. And found out she's like a 25 year old who's already like won a bunch of European indie film awards. And it's like, okay, well, clearly she's very good. And he's very good. And their chemistry is amazing. But like the film as a whole, I would describe as kind of pointless. I was just like, why? What? (laughs) I, as I said, love Phoenix. One of my favorite recent films. I don't love, love any of Petzold's other movies. He has a film called Barbara that is really, really good that I would recommend. And I think Transit's really interesting. I've seen almost all of his films. And like, they're all at least interesting, but none of the other ones am I like, fuck, what a masterpiece. Like Phoenix is really the one that's like up there. But I always am at least, again, like find them interesting. And like, I like watching them. I find them watchable. And he always has really good actors. So like, there's at least something like going on that you can grasp in that way. And And he likes romance and he likes women is the impression I get. So almost all of his films have female protagonists. And most of them have previously starred this actress, Nina Haas, who is also the lead of Phoenix, who is a genius. Truly. People who aren't familiar with German cinema, like you're missing out. This woman is so fucking good. She's going to be in some English language movie with a couple other people coming up in the next couple years, I think. But um, like, she's just incredible. And the past two movies he's made... Do not feature her. And instead he's worked with this woman, Paula Beer, who looks a lot like Nina Haas, but is like 30 years younger. And he has Uh, styled her uh, to look exactly like Nina Haas uh, in this movie. And I don't know what the deal is because I I have no inside information here, obviously. Like, it's totally possible that they were just like, we've made like 10 movies together and it's, you know, time for a break. Like, I'd like to do something else. And the character in Transit... There was no role for her. Paula Beer also played the love interest in Transit, which I think is kind of a sexist part, actually. But um, Nina Haas would have been too old for that. But Paula Beer is 10 years younger than Franz Rogowski in this. And Nina Haas is 10 years older than him. So really, it could have gone either way. And it is just amazing to me that he's, like, obsessed with Vertigo and is, like, pulled a Vertigo with these women. Like, what is going on? So that's weird. Again, like I saw him do a talk and like was like in the restaurant like next to him afterwards as they were having dinner completely by coincidence and he seemed like a very lovely man. So like I don't think there's anything nefarious going on here but it was a little bit weird. I would love to know the inside scoop on what the fuck happened with the two of them. So the whole time I was watching this, every time she did anything, even though she is very good, I kept thinking, you know, Haas would have been better <laughs> <laughs> which is not her fault but like it's true but the bigger problem is that there's no point as you said to anything that happened and normally his films have some sort of like political subtext context theme 
And there's all this talk about architecture in this movie that, like, maybe someone smarter than me could. I mean, I get was it. kind of watching that, being like, there is a significant amount of this film is like her giving quite dry academic lectures about architecture, and I was like, this doesn't have any thematic purpose. <laughs> I don't understand, like, what? And like, he's made three movies in a row about German history. So, like, even the contemporary films he made before that had some sort of like political feeling to them, and this, I was just like, I do not understand what you are saying. It was caught in between being like a weird movie and being a conventional romantic drama. It wasn't weird enough. I'm not going to be such a maniac that I say that it has to be a mermaid film, but there was like 5% of a hint of mermaid content here and it's like, no, you need to either remove the mermaid element entirely or like go full mermaid. (laughs) Yes, completely. Yeah, and it was like, as a conventional romantic drama, it didn't super work because like the narrative structure wasn't kind of complete enough even though the two lead actors were great and you absolutely got like a coherent vibe of like what their relationship was. We're not going to be like, don't watch it, but also it's kind of like, there's other films by this filmmaker that you can watch instead. Yes. My last note on this would be that um, Christian Petzold had a mentor who was also his screenwriting partner who died after Phoenix. So this guy's name was Harun Faroki. And I believe that the quality of screenplay has diminished. I mean, Christian Petzold is 60 years old. Yes. Just for context of like someone whose mentor just died. (laughs) You know, he's not a newcomer. It was like his writing teacher and then like they wrote all of his movies together. And then this guy died like five years ago. I mean, Christian Petzold is like the premier working German filmmaker. Like he's been around for a while. But again, this goes back to the sort of what I was saying about the McQueen films. Like people talk about directors as though they are like the sole authors of their movies and that is not true uh shall we start sort of taking turns with the stuff that we we saw that the other person didn't yeah um okay i will talk very briefly about wolf walkers which is just a great movie it is a family animated film it is you know, suitable for young kids. It's by um, an Irish animation studio who have released four movies so far, which have received uh, Oscar nominations for Best Animated Film. They have kind of a hand-drawn style and they make films that are specifically kind of Irish folklore and history. So if you've seen like The Secret of Kells or Song of the Sea, those are both by them. And this one is kind of a, essentially like a werewolf story. It's set during Oliver Cromwell's occupation of Ireland. And the main character is a little English girl who goes with her father to like move to this Irish town as the occupying force. The kind of English settlers are trying to like tame the local population and the local forest, which it turns out is home to a community of wolves and also humans who like shift into wolves during the night. And the main little girl makes friends with like a wolf girl, you know, simple children's story. And it's just like really delightful. The animation is absolutely gorgeous and a really unique style that's kind of a combination of kind of contemporary like Cartoon Network style character design, but also like medieval manuscript stuff that they drew from their earlier films and kind of very painterly. It's gorgeous. The music's very good. So yeah, recommended Wolf Walkers. I am so looking forward to this movie. I've seen both The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, and I love them so much. Song of the Sea in particular, which is the most recent one they did, I think. Like, I just so appreciate their animation style being doing kind of a different thing. Yeah, I mean, the animation style is very different from what you see, but like narratively, this film is simultaneously suitable for very, very young kids and narratively a lot more kind of complex and interesting on a thematic level. So they know what they're about. 
I mean, the fact that you just mentioned Oliver Cromwell <laughs> is, is indeed a testament to that fact. Um, so I've got slightly more movies than Morgan, so I will mention another one and then we will move on to one of Morgan's films. Um, another, I watched several horror movies because I like some horror. There's a movie called Rose, A Love Story, which is directed by a new director called Jennifer Sheridan, who I think primarily has worked as like an editor and done some short films. This movie is great. Like it's a really simple horror movie that is about a couple, like a millennial couple who are living in the forest in Britain, which trust me is a lot weirder than living in like the forest in America because it's hard to find a remote location in England. Um, it's a very small country. And um the woman has some unnamed ailment and it's kind of a weird survivalist situation where like she's not leaving the house and he's doing all the kind of hunting and stuff around the house while she stays in and all the like shades are drawn but it's not like a creepy abusive relationship it's definitely like a relationship with people who like each other and generally trust each other and um it's some kind of ailment that requires her to be eating basically like raw flesh well, he has his like normal human food. It's a claustrophobic kind of horror drama, but not like in a jump scare way. And very well written, well directed, interesting, well paced story about two people who are in this weird situation and what happens when things occur to disrupt that situation. And, you know, it's a low budget film starring two people you've probably never seen before. And I would recommend it if you like that sort of thing. Rose, a love story. Do we know what the distribution situation is for that one? No, no. I mean, it's coming out in the UK at some point, but like, no, I don't think that has a US streaming release yet. It will probably be on Netflix at some point. Yeah. So I also saw Nomadland, the extremely buzzed, very new buzzy film movie, very buzzy by Chloe Zhao. Uh, but she also made The Writer a couple years ago, which was on my top ten list, whenever that was. This movie stars Francis McDormand, as most of you will know, I'm sure, as someone who is living in a sort of itinerant fashion. She has a van that she's outfitted in a very sort of ingenious way so that she can live out of it. And she works for part of the year at an Amazon warehouse and then meets a friend there who encourages her to sort of drive down to Arizona for part of the year where there is sort of area where a bunch of these people who live out of their sort of vans or trailers or cars who call themselves nomads live together and then they all sort of drive off to various places for other parts of the year. They're all kind of older people. It's based on um, a nonfiction book about people who do live in this way. And many of the people in the film are the real people who are featured in that book playing kind of versions of themselves. I mean, it's kind of like a passion project for Frances McDormand, right? Like, she was yes. really interested in this topic. Yes. And for a while during the filming, was, like, actually living out of the van, and then eventually was like, I'm over 60, and I'm going to live in a motel for the rest of the shooting. And she and David Strathairn, who plays this guy who's kind of romantically interested in her, and she can't really decide how she feels about it, are the uh, only two professional actors in the movie, I think. And Oh, that's they interesting. Yes, they cast, and he was cast because he's, like, a good friend of hers. And then, like, his son is played by his real son in the movie. So, like, they did, there was a lot of kind of verite stuff going on. Which is in keeping with Chloe Zhao's methods from her previous two features, which is um, The Rider and Songs My Brother Taught Me, which I have not seen, but definitely want to. The Rider is about a 
guy who rode like, rodeo and also trained horses and had a really severe head injury from doing rodeo and was told he couldn't ever get on a horse again. And um, that happened to this person, Brady Jandro, in real life. And his family plays his family in the film. And um, it's about him trying to, trying to recover from that. And um, like friends of his play friends of his in the movie. And I had no idea when I was watching that film that that was the case. And then they, you show the credits at the end and it's clear that they're all related to each other from their names in the credits. And I was like, oh, everyone loves Nomadland so much. And I didn't. So I feel like my brain is broken. Like, I don't know what happened. I didn't hate it at all. Like, I don't think it's a bad movie. I just, um... I mean, sometimes one does not like the hit movie. Sometimes one just thinks it's good. So I'm looking forward to seeing this um, in a hundred years, whenever it's available to me. But, um, yeah, most people think this is a masterpiece and Morgan's just like, it's fine. (laughs) So this was one where, like, we had four hours to see it and I was kind of, like, not in the mood to watch a movie and I had to watch it because I paid $20 to see this movie and was like, well, I have to watch it. And I was, like, watching it on my computer in the dark and was like, this is not ideal. Like, a lot of the reviews really um, praised the integration of the professional actors with the non-actors, or, like, non-professional actors, obviously. And I really felt that I could tell the difference. Not in the sense that McDormand and Strathairn did a bad job sort of interacting with these other people. They, They did a really good job. Like, Frances McDormand is a really warm person, a lot of her roles kind of play on this warmth that she exudes. And I mean, not all of them, of course, but she can do that really well. And she does that really well in this movie. Like she's clearly very receptive to talking to these people and they talk to her really easily. And like, she's the, her character is both clearly like really like can't stay in the same place for very long and is really resistant to, getting sort of too close to people, but also is really warm and engaging with them in sort of like an in-the-moment way. She's incredible in the movie. Like, she is as good as everyone is saying. I mean, she's one of our great actors, right? Like, she's so, so good. But it's almost a problem, I think, for the movie how good she is. Because you have a close-up on her face, and she's like doing so much, and you can feel all this stuff happening in her head. And then they cut to these other people who are not trained actors, and it is not the same thing, right? Like, they, oh, there are a lot of these sh- shots of them, or, like, there'll be a shot of them and they'll cut away, but they're still talking, where they're kind of, like, explaining their life story. And I'm sure it's kind of, like, a version of what has happened and not, like, the real, total real thing. But it felt almost, like, talking head-ish to me, right? And it's not that they're, like, bad, but they're not fucking Frances McDormand, because no one is Frances McDormand. And it's something like the writer where like the people in that do a great job. And the main guy, Brady Jandro is so compelling. Like you just want to look at his face, but he's not Francis McDormand either because he's not a trained actor, but there is no Francis McDormand in that movie to like remind you of what someone like that does on screen. Like you're just in this world with all these people that Chloe Jaw has sort of created for them. Right. But as soon as you introduce someone who is a trained actor of that caliber, you're kind of reminded of the fact, or I was anyway, that these other people are, like, real, in quotes, you know? Because, like, in reality, what you interpret as, like, an extremely intense, realistic, engaging performance is actually 
a magnification of reality because most yes. people don't actually have that much going on in their face most Correct. of the time. <laughs> and like clearly this was not an issue for most people because the reaction was so positive. But I had it I like I just couldn't in my head stop feeling like I was clocking it. And I also felt like there's this depiction of this community and it's really, really positive, which like I certainly don't have a problem with. I don't I have no experience of this community. I have no connection to it. Clearly Chloe Ja really embedded with these people and was really moved and like affected by them. But it's so positive that it began to feel like slightly agitprop-y to me. Like there's lots of scenes where they're kind of explaining like how great being a nomad is to the point where I was like, I get it. I understand. And like some of them have deliberately chosen to live this way because like they want to do that. And some of them are clearly- I kind of assumed this was going to be a movie about how like so many people of retirement age in the US are having to live in vans because like they don't have any money. Like that's obviously the case for a lot of these people. Some of them are more like proactively like want to be doing this. There, I think the people who love this movie would say that the political stuff is subtextually there. And like there are some people who, again, these sort of secondary characters like explain their circumstances and like talk about what's happened to them sort of financially. I felt like the movie kind of was muddled in that sense. There just wasn't enough of a grasp of like well, like, but this is all happening for this, like, big structural reason. Amazon is definitely presented as, like, good, which also is a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, okay. Not in the sense that people are, like, talking about how great Amazon is all the time, but, like, they let them shoot in their warehouse. And, like, that's, part. That's like, the steady money is from, like, that part of the year. The politics weren't fully cooked, I guess, would be, like, okay. one way of putting it. Whereas the McDormand performance was was like that was so affecting to me and I think clearly was to a lot of other people but then when I looked at the rest of the movie I was like I don't know about this I mean I have not heard this opinion from anyone else but that definitely gels to me now you've explained that it kind of articulates a problem that I frequently notice with not American films but like films that are about class and like finance in America they're more likely to be a hit if they're like 75% true than if it's like a really hard hitting movie that actually covers like in a detailed way class and money in America. Like those movies are never a hit. But if you're like yeah. part of the way there, people are like, this is such a searing commentary. <laughs> Don't give us the other 25%. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? Like it won the audience award at Toronto. And I saw a lot of reactions of people being like, oh my god, Toronto actually, like, a good movie won this award. Because, like, it went to, like, Green Book a couple of years ago and something else last year that was, I think, not very good. I can't remember what the movie was. Maybe I'm slandering something. But I watched it and I was like, it completely makes sense this movie won the award. Because it actually doesn't make you feel that bad. Right? And I think part of what is good about the movie is that it really respects these people and isn't trying to be like, their lives are so miserable all the time. It isn't it depressing and like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that is good, right? Like, because it doesn't have to be the case that like your life is like miserable and depressing and like horrible all the time because you don't have money. Like part of what Fern finds attractive about these people in their lives is that they are kind of making their way and like 
finding ways to sort of enjoy themselves, even though their circumstances are obviously not great. But I similarly was like, but like, this is not a good situation. I think this, it's kind of like a verite approach that Chloe Jaw is taking, right? Like she really is, again, embedding herself. But I think that that can sometimes prevent you from see, like seeing the bigger picture, which I think is a little bit of an issue. Yeah. However, we should move on because we have like a thousand other films to do or at least a handful. We very fast. I think this one, I've actually published a review of this movie, so you can go check that out on the Daily Dot, but this is One Night in Miami, which is directed by Regina King, the obviously acclaimed Oscar and Golden Globe and Emmy award-winning actress, whom we all know. And uh, for her first movie, she's directing, it's a screenplay by the playwright Kemp Powers. This is very clearly based on a theatre play, um, because it's a movie with like a small cast, and they're basically just like talking in static environments for two hours. Um, but it's kind of inspired by true life, but not like a really directly accurate true event. It takes place obviously over one night in Miami where these four historical figures in the 1960s are together for a big prize fight. So it is Muhammad Ali, who at this point is still referred to as Cassius Clay. It's shortly before he converted to the Nation of Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. So he is one of the lead characters. We then have Malcolm X, um, Jim Brown, the footballer, who is apparently very famous in America, but I 100% had never heard of. And Sam Cooke, who obviously I had heard of, iconic singer. Four very famous, catchy individuals, and they are basically talking, like they're hanging out, they're chatting. So it's a hangout movie, but it's also a very political hangout movie because they're kind of talking about their public images as black celebrities in like the absolute height of the civil rights era. And the four actors are Kingsley Ben-Adir as Malcolm X, which is interesting casting. He is a British actor and I know him as the lead actor from the second season of The OA on Netflix, which is one of my favourite TV shows ever. He is fantastic in The OA. He is good in this, but I don't really know enough about like Malcolm X to really have a strong opinion on his performance in this. Um, I'd love to see the Malcolm X biopic. I will at some point soon. But kind of the vibe they have in this is a couple of the characters kind of just want to party. They want to celebrate Cassius Clay's win. But like Malcolm X wants to talk about politics and he also wants to like, he wants to kind of nudge Cassius Clay into going more public with his like ongoing conversion to the Nation of Islam. So like he's kind of like the the buzzkill. Like he is explicitly the buzzkill of the party. But they are all having these like intellectual debates about politics and their roles in American pop culture while also kind of wanting to have a party at the same time. I liked this movie. It wasn't like amazing. It was a really good debut film. I think it's very accessible. A lot of people are going to watch it when it's on Amazon. I do think it kind of lags a bit in the middle because it is just like a really talky film, but they do kind of break it up by moving to different locations. They have a couple of great musical numbers with Leslie Autumn Jr. is playing Sam Cooke. So obviously great singer, Hamilton star, fantastic. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed this movie. It's pretty good. It's a very straightforward, quite like basic drama of this type but it doesn't kind of enter the corny zone that a lot of biopics do so uh good job regina king yeah i'm really looking forward to that one for the acting alone yeah of the four lead actors aldous hodge plays jim brown and i love aldous hodge and he's great the guy who plays cassius clay i was kind of mixed on i don't really know this actor he's a guy named eli gory who seems to star in like teen tv shows so like he's in the hundred he's in riverdale whatever but like i kind of felt like sometimes his performance was like too broad yeah um why don't you tell us about 
The Mads Mikkelsen movie, Gabby. Yes, loved this film. I was very excited <laughs> to hear that like Mads Mikkelsen had done a good movie because I adore him <laughs> as listeners will know. But like he is good in everything, but like he does a lot of bad and mediocre films. His tastes are all over the place and he's just kind of a chill guy who wants to act. So this film is directed by Thomas Vinterberg, who is like one of the biggest directors in Denmark. He's made several films, which I've not watched. And one of his biggest films is uh, The Hunt, which is the film that Mads Mikkelsen won his Best Actor Award at Cannes for in 2012. This movie is they're kind of, they're reuniting again. And it's a drama, but it's got kind of comedic elements. And the concept is that Mads Mikkelsen is a middle-aged school teacher at a Danish school who essentially he's depressed, but like you don't initially figure that out because kind of the concept is that he's like, he's very boring. He is a boring teacher whose students think he sucks. His home life is like very uneventful because his wife is always working the night shift and like his teenage kids don't really pay attention to him. And kind of things are clarified when he goes to dinner with three of his other middle-aged friends who are also teachers and they kind of are chatting and you realize actually this guy is like really depressed and isolated but just can't articulate it and this comes through when one of them mentions like he's read some clearly absurd academic article by this Norwegian psychologist who's like you know actually um humans are born with like too little alcohol in their blood so if you're just always slightly buzzed um, it's actually the way we ought to be. So if you've got like a 0.5 blood alcohol level, that's the ideal way to be. And he's like, I've actually found it quite hard to like deal with myself socially recently. Maybe I should try this. And his friends, instead of being like, that sounds like a bad idea mental health wise, they're all like, wow, that's such a good idea. Let's start a social experiment where we all have a 0.5 blood alcohol level at work every day. And we take breathalyzers and we test ourselves. And at this point, I was like, this is fucking genius. You can absolutely see like the cogs in these men's brains turning where they found like an intellectual explanation to like engage in self-destructive behavior, but they've also figured out an excuse to like hang out together because they're too repressed to just be like, wouldn't it be nice to hang out and talk about our feelings? Because they can't do that because society has like broken them. And so you have this, this story now where these four men are now like drinking at work. And initially it goes pretty well because like it has allowed Mans Mikkelsen's character to loosen up and like he's more confident in class. And also there's kind of the placebo effect, right? So he's like, oh, I'm going to be a much better teacher now. I'm relaxed. And he is a much better teacher. But obviously this is not <laughs> like not going to be good. And it goes in a very predictable direction. Drinking does not like solve their problems. I really love this movie. Obviously fantastic acting, great acting from the main cast. But um, also it has like quite a nuanced view of just like alcohol and drinking culture and alcohol abuse because Denmark, uh, like a lot of Nordic countries and Britain as well and everywhere in the world, um, big like problem with binge drinking. And the film actually begins with like a bunch of young people playing a drinking game and having an amazing time. And it kind of immediately kicks off this association of kind of youth and freedom and happiness being associated with drinking. And you, the movie does like a really great job of depicting how fun it is to like go out and get drunk with your friends. But it also does a really good job of depicting how if you have like a mental health problem and then you start drinking to solve that problem, it is absolutely going to make it worse. And also how these men are just using alcohol as like a social crutch to interact with each other. And it, it kind of manages to bring all those elements together in quite a sophisticated and also entertaining way. 
I am so excited to see this. I have no idea when it's coming out in America, but I want to see it now. Um, they should release it to me immediately. And there were so I wish I could have seen it in theaters because there were a couple of moments where like I couldn't stop myself pausing the movie and being like, <laughs> which is like you don't want to have control over the pause button because it's like the social anxiety levels were like so high because I was like, just don't do it, don't do what you're doing right now, and it's like they will though, <laughs> they're gonna. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Vinterberg, for people who don't know, was one of the founders of the Dogmat 95 movement in Denmark, along with Lars von Trier. Like, they just, like, wrote a manifesto, and there were, like, various rules for filmmaking. It was all about, like, not using artificial light, and it was almost very, these various things to, for it to be, like, as naturalistic as possible. And this movie he directed that was sort of, like, the apex of Dogmat 95 was called Festin, or Celebration in English, um, which is, like, a, I watched it in college in a film class frequently watched in that context it's an amazing movie and this concept just feels very very much like something that someone who was associated with that would yeah. come up with. i mean it simultaneously felt like it was very kind of well observed but also like very unique and weird because like it is a midlife crisis movie which i feel like would probably be off-putting to a lot of audiences like you don't want to watch a movie about a bunch of 50 year old white guys with comfortable lives being miserable but it's just like fantastic and it's really kind of aware of the demographics of the characters it's working for and the kind of the uniqueness of the concept that they have decided to execute in this film is so plausible because you can imagine people having this like terrible conversation and being like yeah you know i did read this like great journal article and i'm like you did not you did not read a great journal article <laughs> Just start microdosing. Come on. Yeah. Like, please. <laughs> oh my god. Alright, well, um, we will all be looking forward to that. For sure. Um, I too, I do not feel the same passion for Mads Mikkelsen that you do, but I enjoy him as an actor very much, and yeah. <laughs> uh, never see him in anything because the movies he makes uh, are not for me, so I am glad that he has done this. So the last two I have, I'll talk about the first one, are both documentaries. The... First one I'll talk about is called City Hall, which was directed by the 90-year-old documentarian legend Frederick Wiseman. I had never seen a Wiseman movie before, which is very embarrassing because he is such an important filmmaker. But they're all like four hours long, so it's a real commitment to watch one of these. This one was in fact four and a half hours long. I really wish Criterion would put out like a huge box set of these movies because most of them I think are not really particularly accessible. Um, he really was one of the pioneers of verite documentary filmmaking in the 60s and 70s and has done documentaries on a lot of various subjects, but in recent years has been really focused on sort of municipal institutions. So he did a film recently on the New York Public Library. He did a movie about the Jackson Heights neighborhood of Queens in New York. He did a movie about the University of Berkeley, which is obviously not a municipal institution, but is like a public, you know, public institution. And this film, City Hall, is about Boston, Massachusetts, which is where he is from originally. And it is specifically about City Hall and Marty Walsh who is the mayor of Boston but it really encompasses the whole city so like there are scenes of like the one that I keep referring to when I tell people about this film is like an exterminator going to this guy's house to like look at his rat problem <laughs> and the exterminator is like a young black guy and the tenant is an older guy who's clearly a Vietnam vet and like he just starts explaining a, a 
white Vietnam vet, I should clarify. And he just starts, like, explaining all of his personal problems to this exterminator. And the exterminator is just very patiently like, yes, okay. I understand that your sister is trying to evict you and that you're just trying to, like, you know, get by. But, like, um, but it is such an unbelievable picture of the city as a whole and then specifically the city government. So, I mean, this sounds great. This sounds absolutely like a film I am going to love. <laughs> you will love it. I have never had a less accurate idea of how other people will react to a movie. Like, I can tell you you're going to love it because obviously I know you extremely well. But, like, in general, <laughs> watching this, I am, as listeners will know, from outside of Boston and have not been able to go up there for many months now because of the current situation. And so watching this, I was just like absolutely wrecked emotionally because there would just be like shots of buildings in like random Boston neighborhoods. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) this is so emotional. (laughs) And that is not how most people react to like random shots of buildings in this film. But I do think it is a great movie, even if you don't have that sort of built-in emotional attachment to the city it's depicting. Um, a lot of my reaction to it was also based on the fact that I really, really closely follow New York City politics, and um, I will not go into the details of that, but our mayor sucks and everything is a disaster. And I didn't know very much about Marty Walsh, the mayor of Boston, before watching this, and my understanding is that he is basically more central to this film than any person has been in any Wiseman movie before. Like, he doesn't usually focus on, like, an individual person. And he comes back to Walsh again and again and again and again in this movie. And clearly that is because he is just really good at his job. <laughs> like, And it's not just him. It's like all the people working for him who are just like people who work for the city government and not anyone anyone has ever heard of, right? Are so obviously just like dedicated to their work and to like making things better for people in a way that I found like profoundly affecting actually, given both the specifics of being in New York right now and also just, like, American government being so profoundly dysfunctional. And Walsh is definitely, like, a left-wing Democrat, but he's not, like, a radical. But he's just very competent. And again, obviously, genuinely, like, emotionally cares about helping people in Boston. There are a lot of scenes where he's meeting constituents, and he's a obviously an unbelievably gifted politician like he's really good at um bringing like his own personal experiences into these conversations but in a way that feels like he is genuinely trying to connect with people as opposed to like a slimy politician thing where he's just like you know talking about himself and I think the film obviously like he comes off looking really good in this movie but I think the film is using him not to just be like isn't this guy great but to like make an argument for this kind of approach to local government, which is that, like, it takes a huge amount of work to get stuff done, but it is worthwhile and, like, people really need to be doing it. And obviously, like, he doesn't come across as, like, a perfect person and the city government doesn't come across as perfect. And, like, the one thing that I was kind of, like, iffy about was that, like, definitely there are cops in this movie and Wiseman kind of just, like, shows them without any particularly critical lens. not He's not like, aren't the cops great? But like his style, again, is totally verite. So he's kind of just like, here are the cops. 
And Boston, like every other big city in America recently, has had the similar problems with like activists want to be defund the police and the mayor and the city council don't really want to do it. But that's not a huge part of the film. And I think that diving into the other sort of things that the city government is doing was really fascinating to me. And the thing that was the most kind of affecting was that I think people in other parts of the country have this idea of Boston as like this profoundly racist place that is only populated by like drunk white people who love the Patriots. And obviously those people exist. And I have talked on this podcast before, which is about like movies, about like racism in Boston. Like it's not that it's not a thing, but I always feel a little bit like annoyed when people who don't have personal experiences in Massachusetts or Boston start talking about how racist Boston is because like everywhere in America is fucking racist. Like it's not unique to Boston. And in fact, Boston is a majority minority city at this point. And it's like the sort of stereotype is not really telling the whole story of the city. And what the documentary does so beautifully is like show all of the diversity of the city in a way that I found really, really affecting. Like he goes into all these different neighborhoods and shows all these different sort of racial groups with real empathy. Like he's clearly just such an empathetic person and not, again, not showing the city as like a kumbaya place where everything is worked out, but just like, I felt such hope for the future of that place in a way that again, made me just like very emotional that I way I haven't been about like America recently. Yeah, it was really moving to watch it. It's going to be available in like digital cinemas in a week or two, I think, in America. So like you can rent it for six bucks or something. And I would really highly recommend it. Wiseman is 90. He is credited as the director, the editor, the producer, and the sound guy on this film. Like, I don't understand. It's unbelievable. Well, for my final two films... We will take a very abrupt left turn into a very different type of movie. Yesterday, I watched two movies back to back, which were both kind of in the thriller zone. One of them was sci-fi horror. The other one was more kind of political drama. Uh, so Possessor is a new sci-fi horror film by Brandon Cronenberg, who is David Cronenberg's son. And he is a rare example of a nepotism artist who is doing basically the same thing of his father and is actually good at it, which is impressive. Um, obviously, David Cronenberg is famous for making uh, quite aggressive and extreme body horror movies and sci-fi. So, you know, Scanners, The Fly, etc. And uh, this movie is, it stars Andrea Riseborough as an assassin. And it's kind of a near future story where she uses a kind of brain implant technology to implant her consciousness into another person's body. She will then inhabit their body, impersonating them use that body to kill someone and then kill the host body. So it would be like a perfect untraceable crime where it just looks like someone went off the rails and murdered someone. And it's kind of a combination of an extremely violent body horror movie. So Morgan will not be watching this. And also kind of like a psychological drama where thematically it's kind of about the concept of drone piloting because what she's doing is working as a drone pilot where technically she personally is safe. But, you know, morally, she is obviously killing people and it's doubly horrifying because she's violating people's bodies to do it. And the main kind of plot is about her, A, kind of struggling with flashbacks and stuff 
Um, she has no moral problems with being a murderer, but she does have flashbacks, which are clearly massively fucking her up and kind of her personality is starting to fade because she is inhabiting so many other personalities. And also she has to like inhabit this new guy played by an actor named Christopher Abbott, who I kind of vaguely recognize because he's just kind of generic looking, but he's great. Oh, I love that man. Okay, so cool. Good. I'm glad. To, yeah, I mean, I was just like, I can't tell if I've seen this guy in someone something, but he's sort of like a blandly good looking white man. and He's great in this movie. But um, yeah, she has to like inhabit him. So he is mostly playing her character. He's mostly playing Andrea Riseborough's character for the movie. And her job is to use his body to like murder his girlfriend, who is played by Tuppence Middleton. And um, yeah, it's just a really good movie. It's very kind of overtly stylish and that sort of lets use some neon lights kind of way. But yeah, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it because it's very stressful and extremely violent, bloody and disgusting. Um, but if you're the kind of person who can stomach a lot of like, you know, stabbings and what have you, great film. And it's got a Sean Bean cameo. I was like, oh, he's here too. <laughs> um, so solid recommendation for fans of uh, the Cronenberg Zone. I mean, who doesn't like a Sean Bean cameo? Yeah, I mean, he's there and you're like, oh, he's here playing a pretty good character too. Um, sometimes he acts, sometimes he doesn't. That's Sean Bean for you. <laughs> um, oh yeah, also he plays, he voices the dad in Wolf Walkers. So oh, he's getting around. Very perfect. prolific man. Uh, but yeah, the second of the two movies I watched. So yesterday I watched these two very violent films back to back. The second one is a movie called New Order. Mexican movie by the uh, Mexican director, uh, Michelle Franco, who has made various movies. I think Chronic is probably his most successful. I've not seen it, but it's like a drama that won an award at Cannes a few years ago. And uh, he's like a serious indie drama person. And this movie, I was like, okay, this definitely looks like it's up my street because it's um, it's kind of a dystopian political drama, essentially set in the real world. And it's been picked up for distribution in the US. Um, it's coming out like on VOD in a couple of weeks. And the first third of this movie was amazing. It starts off at a wedding in like a very wealthy Mexican community. So it's like a gated community. They can afford guards, very classy wedding. And you get hints that there is like probably a revolution happening because like they are very studiously not talking about whatever's happening outside of the wedding. And a few of the guests, when they come into the wedding, they've got like green paint on them. Like people's been throwing, like people have been throwing paint at cars and you're like, okay, well, there's definitely like shit is going down. And there's some other kind of ex very well-observed elements of kind of class struggle going on where there's like the husband of a former maid at this family's home comes to ask for money to get money for his wife's like heart operation and there's various members of the family are like debating whether to give this guy money and the general vibe is like I was like you can definitely compare this movie to Parasite and that first third is incredible and then about a third of the way through this wedding, the revolution like properly kicks off and starts invading the wedding, at which point it gets like very violent. And I was like, okay, I think that like this is like too aggressive because the way they're depicting it is like it's a, they don't specify the exact politics, but it's like an economic breakdown kind of protest, which we're seeing in loads of countries. But it portrays the protesters as like extremely homicidal. And I'm like, I just don't think that's the way that pans out in real life. I don't think that it's like fully like killing spree, you know? Obviously people get angry and during revolutions, people get killed and you get like a French revolution situation where everyone's like murdering rich people. But it was like, it was so extreme that I was like, I just don't feel like the death rate would be this high. And then 
it takes place over the course of like several months after that where like the military takes over and one of the main characters gets kidnapped and there's like a lot of like rape and torture and stuff and that was the point where it really lost me because I like could no longer tell what the film was like trying to do and I wanted to kind of bring up what happens throughout the film just as a sort of way to be like if you see this movie like advertised and be like this looks like a really kind of smart and interesting piece of political commentary I would actually kind of describe this as like entering the torture porn zone by the end and it didn't like do it in a way that really articulated to me what they were trying to say about the political situation and it just felt like very pessimistic and not as intelligent about sort of class as I thought it was in the first third so New Order yeah I haven't written my review of it yet but it's just it, it disappointed me bummer to hear yeah. Ah, uh, so so you endorse Possessor and not. New I endorse Order. Possessor, uh, with the caveat that you should be someone who's okay with watching. Like, I mean, I feel like you can probably tell by watching the first five minutes of Possessor whether you're going to be into it because, yeah. like, the first <laughs> shot of the movie was like a woman like stabbing herself in the skull, and I was like, at this point, like the toddler was in the room with me, and I was like ushering her out of the room, like, I know you don't <laughs> understand this, but like, I don't want you to have your like psyche scarred. <laughs> so, yeah, there's blood from the get go. All right. Well, um, again. Veering in a different direction <laughs> for our last film, which is Time by Garrett Bradley, which is available in the US on Amazon now. I don't know about other places. It combines archival footage that was shot uh, by this woman who was in prison herself for a period of time and whose husband remains in prison. And she's shot this footage of her family and herself for her husband over the course of years. And then there's also footage shot for the documentary sort of in the present day. And it's interpolated together. And this sort of setup of these people's lives is that they were married and were running a clothing store and it wasn't doing very well and that they um, robbed or attempted to, attempted to rob a bank and got caught the wife took a plea bargain and that was how she wound up getting out so much faster and she was also pregnant which i think helped um and the husband didn't take the plea bargain and got sentenced to 60 years so the wife has then gone on this quest basically to get her husband released early and they have several sons who have now, like, basically grown up without their father present. And um, I found that the video footage um, more kind of immediately affecting than the present day footage, not because of any of the content. I just found, like, aesthetically speaking, the present day footage, I think, is a little bit just more, like, slick. And again, I'm speaking just purely from, like, an aesthetic Point of view it's all shot in black and white and i think that the um archival like video is just like so immediately gripping and it's edited together in an incredibly effective way and the music is really good too at like getting you kind of in the chest and i think the black and white digital doesn't always i mean it looks like technically good but not always like great I don't know if that makes any sense. You kind of have to watch it. I think it's really hard to do digital black and white in a way that actually like looks good. But the actual like the story that's being told is unbelievably affecting. I think fictional films that deal with the criminal justice system often have a tendency to focus on wrongful convictions. 
because it feels like that's an easier way to gain sympathy for characters, and especially when they're dealing with a death penalty, which is not the case in this movie, but, like, I've definitely seen a number of death penalty movies where, like, the person has been wrongfully convicted and it's such a tragedy that they're going to be executed, which, like, obviously is true and that's a problem, but in this case, which is a real story, obviously, like, these people did it, and that's not the point. The point is that, like, you should not go to prison for 60 years for this So if you have Amazon Prime or access to someone else's Amazon Prime account, you can watch this now in America. And it is a really beautiful movie directed by Garrett Bradley, uh, Time. Well, this has been a very wide range of movies we have discussed in this podcast. Um, Kudos to those who have stuck around to the end. I hope we've been helpful. I hope you enjoy some of these movies once they come out. I think a few of them are out pretty soon. Um, Yeah, thanks uh, for listening in. Yes, I love doing these episodes every year. Um, we had hoped to go to Toronto this year, and uh, yeah, our big plan was happen. to go to Toronto together. That was a no. <laughs> Maybe next year. Who knows what will be going on in September of 2021? There are still so many good good movies out there, which is really encouraging. I mean, sort of people arguing they should cancel the Oscars. Like, my list of movies that I have to see for this year is, like, 55 movies long right now. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> so, and you are a very normal and representative person when it comes to the Oscars. <laughs> I mean, they should be catering to you, their target audience. Yes, correct. I am exactly their target audience. <laughs> like, their target audience should be people who care about the Oscars and certainly people voting on these things, like... There have been a lot, already like so many good movies this year, um, and I've there's still so much stuff I haven't seen and stuff that hasn't come out yet. So um, hopefully you've gotten some recommendations of things to check out, and uh, we really appreciate you listening. You can support us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/OverinvestedPodcast. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter and you can find my work, including various film reviews attached to this episode on The Daily Dot. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.